When the property market goes through tough times, it's human nature for owners to get at least a little fearful and seek reassurance that things are okay in their neck of the woods. Nobody wants to feel like the value of their property has fallen, and we certainly don't want to feel foolish for having bought real estate in the first place. Today, we're going to explore some of the questions that property owners have been asking at a postcode level. About half of the people in my surveys, and this is now back to the surveys rather than the one-to-ones, still believe that property doubles every seven years. All right. In fact, I made a post over the weekend because I got so cross about this, right? Because I've been looking at individual postcode data for lots and lots of different postcodes. And there is none that I could find where you could actually pin a doubling of prices from 2013 to 2020, right? There's no, there's, it, it is completely untrue. It's a myth. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au A few months back, we had a very interesting chat with Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Uh, Martin's considered by many to be a property bear, but we found out despite all his dire warnings, he's actually a property realist. In fact, we shared a surprising amount of common ground. Now, I was chatting with Martin a couple of weeks back and he happened to mention that he's been offering one-to-one sessions to property owners who want to know about their specific postcode. These people are reaching out to him quite possibly from a position of fear. And what I immediately wanted to know was, What is keeping property owners awake at night in the current environment? Will we be able to glean any clues as to what they'll do about their fears? So I invited him back to join us today to fill us in. Welcome, Martin. Hello there. Now, Chris isn't with us today, so it's just you and me. Uh, And before we get into some of this postcode stuff, and I'm very keen to know, (laughs) you know, really what is on the mind of property owners, um, I've been looking at most recent uh, release and looking at the way household finance confidence graphs plummet in March or plummeted I should say in March but upticked in May notwithstanding Victoria I can't help but wonder how much of this is actually perception and how much is reality Mm. I think it's very interesting of course perception is reality to an extent isn't it insofar Mm. that uh, how people are feeling and how they perceive things to be will determine quite often what they actually go do Mm. Um, but the two things that I'm seeing. So I measure both um, confidence, which is a subjective measure, and also objectively financial flow pressure. And I've seen a very strong correlation of those two things over the medium term. So it isn't just uh, the virus related over the last few years. So essentially what happens is when people are uncertain about what's going on, they tend to be more conservative, they tend to be more cautious, they tend to want to get more information to be able to make decisions, which is which is a good thing. Yep. But uh, obviously from a reserve bank lens, 
they want households to go spend, 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 right? Because that is critical to support the old GDP number. Now, we can debate whether GDP is a sensible way of measuring anything, but that's probably another conversation. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 the fact is that um, when people are uncertain, they may well spend less. Now, of course, we've had a huge stimulus, you know, $100 million in last quarter, and some of that has gone into um, uh, people's, you know, wallets to be able to spend, and some of it's been spent. So whether you've drawn down on super, whether you've had job keeper or job seeker, or whether you've uh, uh, had other mechanisms like your repayment holidays, so there has been some uptick in spending. But the underlying message that I'm seeing in terms of my data is that more households are getting more twitchy and more cautious. And frankly, the Victorian lockdown was really a significant negative force, not just in Victoria, but more broadly. And I'm seeing it now in my latest commercial data as well, particularly the SME data. So I think we're at a bit of a precipitous point at the moment. And uh, not surprisingly, then people are a bit cautious. And it is rather interesting, you know, obviously, Victoria going into lockdown, that does literally quite literally shut down the economy, right? But it's like you say, it's the perception side of things as well. And some people are really worried about their own backyard and some people worry about the bigger picture. And and I guess this is why it's quite interesting, you know, you were telling me about you offering these one-on-one on a postcode level. And I'm curious to know what insights or I guess what has that told you further to your surveys that's going on in the minds and hearts of Australian property owners? Well, it's a really fascinating thing. Look, I started doing this because I started getting a lot of people reaching out for me and saying, I'm worried, you know, what's going on? I'd need to try and get better information because I don't necessarily trust what uh, what is out there in the mainstream. I don't necessarily trust what's on the property portals these days, right? So what's really going on? So I started this a few weeks ago, which essentially was to say, okay, look, I'll devote a bit of my time for digging into a postcode and we'll look at price trends and we'll look at uh, gross yields and we'll look at uh, what's on the market and all, all, all the standard things, right? And then we'll have a conversation about a particular postcode and we can pull it apart and try and get a sense of what's happened. But also, I'm overlaying my scenario. So I look forward as well and think about, well, what the, what is the economy going to be doing? And so I look at things like mortgage stress and uh, you know migration statistics and CPI, all of those things. And I can begin to work out, therefore, the implications for property going forward too, right? So that's the basis of the, of, of the conversation. And then we have a chat. And I've had a large number of people wanting this. And in fact, uh, I've had to book out. I'm booked more than a month ahead, actually, in terms of all of the uh, various uh, uh, slots that I have, because there is, this is such a popular conversation. But I'm learning a lot, as well as hopefully providing some insights to individual households. But I can begin to put people into a few different buckets, right? So mm. the first group is a first-time buyers. I've had a lot of people who are very, very keen to get into the property market and were very excited by all this talk about um, stamp duty being further abolished and, uh, you know, the state and federal government grants so that it makes it really attractive to go buy a homeland package. Um, You know, for example, in WA, if you add the state and federal stimulus together, you can get $55,000 in your pocket if you go and buy a homeland package. and I mean, 
I, this is no surprise to me. I've been doing quite a bit of work on this myself at the moment. I'm mm. horrified at how, you know, the perception for first-home buyers, and tell me if this is what you're finding, has been, this is money for me, I need to grab it. And it's like, no, it's not money for you. It's a bribe. <laughs> yeah. I, I did a little bit of analysis and worked out that in rural Victoria, if you sort of kept under, I think, the $375,000 price threshold, you could, assuming you didn't lose any money the minute you settled, you could actually end up with um, 17.5% equity or something like that. I think I worked it out on day one, which is great, assuming that you don't lose money because you bought a, a non-scarce asset. Mm. So, he, <laughs> so he, look, here's the thing, right? So what happened in WA with that $55,000? Well, the first thing that happened was that the Homeland Package prices went up by, guess what? $55,000, mm. literally before anybody could bu- go buy them, right? So, so you can well, measure that. Yeah, absolutely. We saw, we saw it. Yeah, we saw it. So effectively, it's it's a net sum game insofar that the developers put the prices up. So that's the first yeah. point, right? The second thing that's happened is that in the surrounding area, existing property has dropped because the supply-demand disequilibrium that's been created by doing this basically means that a lot of other people are losing. And, of course, in WA, prices have slid down for quite a long long time beforehand, and that's just another, another downward force. Third point is people are contracting for a price based on, at that point of negotiation and conclusion, but for six months, nine months, a year down the track when it's actually yeah. completed, right? And the forward projections I have suggest that prices are going to continue to slide. So what they're doing is they're locking in at an expensive price point in the market on the expectation that the government's given them money so it must be good, unfortunately not understanding that, one, prices are likely to slide from this point so they're going to be locked in, two, um, like in a new car, when you drive it away from the forecourt, it drops in value almost immediately. So you could potentially could be risking some loss of um, equity that you've, you know, you've hard learned, uh, learned equity to put into it. And, and three, there is still a lot of uncertainty about precisely when those homeland packages will actually be, you know, delivered. Right. So because there's a construction cycle that's also being disrupted by COVID, and you know, imports are struggling and prices of materials are also all over the place so you know you stand back and then you talk to these first-time buyers you said well you know i think i should go for this and i said well you know yeah i'm not going to give you advice because that's not what i do but i just want to put some data on the table right so the mm. data point one prices went up before you know you committed two there is a risk that prices may go up they may go down you're not sure and three um you know, you might actually find that when you've bought something, when you move from it being new to secondhand, then effectively you lose value. So in an, there's no prospect that I can see pretty much anywhere at the moment of prices accelerating dramatically from where they are, right? And, and, and that's the critical point about first-time buyers because first-time buyers up to this point have always said, okay, I know it's going to be a struggle to get into the market, but at least once I'm in, I'm going to be able to ride the market higher. Now, what happens if that's yeah. no longer true, right? First point. Second point, incomes are now under pressure and jobs are under pressure. And so the other sort of line of argument that the, the first-time buyers were sort of starting to understand was that there are more risks in committing now than previously because job prospects and job security and job uh, income growth are all at risk, Right. And if, in fact, we get an employment rate of, what, 10% or more at the end of this year and uh, maybe 7% in two years' time, which is what the Reserve Bank is suggesting, right, you could actually end up with a financial 
pincer movement happening where effectively your own personal circumstances goes adverse at the point when you're committed to completing on the property. So Mm. a lot of risks. How much upside? Not a lot. So let's just stand back. What you're doing is actually receiving a certain amount of money from the government to help the construction sector, so it's a bribe, but your own personal situation may not be improved by capitalising on it. And that was the sort of the tenor of the conversation that I had a number of times with people attracted by these home land packages. Did you find, though, because, you know, we have this sort of confidence bias in Australia about property and and that and there's a FOMO that kicks in as well, of course, because, you know, those that don't have property feel like that there's some sort of lovely secret world out there they're missing out on. Um, <laughs> do you Did you find that overwhelmingly those people were convinced by your argument or do you find still there's a proportion of people that <laughs> they don't care, they're going to kick on and do whatever they Oh, going to do anyway. Look, about half of the people in my surveys, and this is now back to the surveys rather than mm. the uh, one-to-ones, still believe that property doubles every seven years. Right? Mm. In fact, I made a post over the weekend because I got so cross about this, right? Because I've been looking at individual postcode data for lots and lots of different postcodes. And there is none that I could find where you could actually pin a doubling of prices from 2013 to 2020 right there's no there's, it, it is completely untrue it's a myth right hang now, on wait, wait so you're looking at postcode level of saying median prices is nowhere where the prices doubled correct. in those seven years correct because yeah. the, the weirdly enough though if you, and we talk about this before you go granular i can give you plenty of examples of individual properties that have uh well that may well be and then that's yeah. the point of right so but mm. but and it depends then on how you look at it. So, so all that, all I'm saying to people is, don't automatically assume that every property in every postcode is going to yeah. double in every seven years. Now, there will there will be, of course, there will be some properties that will perform really well, and um, we, you know, it goes back to our you know, standard yeah, conversation about <laughs> really good properties versus not good properties, right? And yeah, picking okay. and choosing and all those things. But but the the point of there is no mechanical process whereby if you buy a property you are guaranteed in getting a doubling of your money in seven years which is yeah. still what people think right and, wow. and you know and i find that in the current environment very very concerning because there is still a very strong attitude and it's not just amongst first-time buyers i'll talk about some of the other segments shortly in terms of their yeah. attitude to property but there are still many people who still think that property is the way to go why because it's tangible because you can kick it kick the tires on you can hold it and own it and i understand that all right yeah. but but the fact is that not every property in every postcode is going to perform the same way and not exactly. every property is going to double in seven years, there will be some that will do well, there will be some that won't do well. And I have to say that if I look across my postcode map at the moment, there are more postcodes signalling falls ahead rather than rises ahead. By the way, it's worse for units compared with houses. Houses tend to hold their value better, as we've discussed before, and that's because of scarcity value and the fact that you know houses on good plots, facing the right way, with the right views, will always command a premium. But it's really Very fascinating. True. It's really fascinating watching this disconnect between, if you like, the psychology of people wanting to get into the market, wanting to get property. There's still a very strong drive from many first-time buyers to get into the market because, you know, their parents got the property and they did well and everybody else around them is buying property and they want to be on the same, you know, on the same bandwagon, as it were. But when you actually come to peeling back the, well, why, 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 right? There are two things that are happening. The first is, there's a bit of a sense of security and, and you know, I want it because I, then I can control it. But the other is pure greed. 
It's about the assumption that you're going to make money. And, and the point I want to come back to is you may make money, you may, may not make money, but if you're buying property purely, purely just because you think it's a speculative investment and you're going to make money by doing it, I think that's the wrong motivation to buy property personally, but you know, maybe I'm just old-fashioned. So what's interesting is I, there's a really strong disconnect between the psychological and aspirational, you know, I think I want to buy, right, and the financial, well, you know, I'm going to buy because I'm going to be able to double my money, right? And I, my worry is that many first-time buyers are still making uh, a decision to buy more on the economics and, and, you know, you've got to stand back and just think more broadly, right? Because, frankly, this may not be the time to buy. The right, the right thing might be just wait a bit and see how the property market migrates forward. And, and don't be misled by, you know, the government um, uh, bazookas in terms of saying, you know, you must buy now because, of course, they want to support their friends in the construction sector. So, um, but, but there's a really complex set of decisioning going on that many first-time buyers, I think, are very confused at the moment. Yeah, and it's very interesting as well because, of course, you know, the, the elephant in the room is all about the psychology of, you know, what, why we do what we do and mm. tapped into FOMO, tapped into um, that whole idea of, um, you know, confidence, confidence bias but also, or overconfidence bias, but also that idea about um, confirmation bias that um, we somehow believe that property goes up in value and so then we seek uh, information to support that but you've got people actually seeking support or information that actually doesn't support that when they contact you I mean they must know what they're getting <laughs> well I mean I try to be objective right and I show them the the trends from 2013 to 2020 that's a medium price um, you know for houses units about what we're talking about right people are very surprised by that um, and it's because quite often they haven't seen that sort of data before. And what I do is I actually show a percentage change year on year on year. And it's fascinating how if, for many postcodes there was a significant rise in, you know, 2014, 2015, in some cases more than 20% up on average. But then quite often it dropped over the 17, 18, 19, and then there was mm. a slight move up in 20 but not very much and so if you look back over the last uh, few years it's quite a you know an interesting profile and in fact i'm beginning to think that these percentage change profiles are probably more powerful than actually the dollar numbers on the property because it shows the trajectory right mm. and then what i do is i overlay the next three years and say well based on my economic um, scenarios here is a range of outcomes, but this is what I think is most likely based on what I see now. And that then allows me to be able to show, um, you know, what may happen price up, price down over the next uh, next few years. So those are very important um, indicators. Now, I'm not saying I'm predictive because it's not. It's just based on all the um, data and it will change again. But it, but it's an important conversation. And so people are sort of beginning to wake up when I chat with them about the decision process that you have to go through to decide whether to buy or whether not to buy, and the research that you have to do to be able to get the information to be able to make good decisions is way more complicated than many people start at the beginning of the conversation. It's absolutely true. But what is interesting too that you say that in your surveys, 50% of people still believe that property goes up, you know, doubles in seven years. <laughs> and, um, and yet... A lot of those people already own property. Obviously, they're not all first home buyers. So, and I guess 
I find it too when I talk to people about their propping, people say to me they've done really well and I say, how have you measured that? And now they don't have a benchmark for it. And I'm like, well, you know, not every property goes up the same rate. It's not every property goes up. Um, you know, it's important that you you look at opportunity costs and all these other things. And I, and I guess when you're sitting in a property, you just feel a bit more safe and secure perhaps um, and you just assume it's going up. <laughs> so, well, what's interesting is, and, and let's, let's talk about my um, uh, other segments, right? So there's a segment mm. there uh, who I, let's call them down traders. So these are people who've sit in, sit in, sat in the property for quite some time, seen it go up, uh, or maybe an investor who's got property and they've seen it go up. So that, that they've of the view that they've got equity in their property, right? So the first conversation point is, okay, how do you know you've got equity? And the answer is, well, you know, all prices in Sydney have gone up by X, right? That tends to be the starting point for the conversation, right? So, Or I know somebody down the road who last year sold for Y, right? Mm. Um, now, neither of those are very good benchmarks in terms of understanding what the value of the property might actually be, right? Mm. Uh, and, and so problem one, it's hard to get really good data at a granular level unless you talk to a local agent who really gives you the honest answer, right? And many, <laughs> many agents, of course, are very keen to try and um, either um, encourage you to sell by telling you that you can make a huge amount or I've seen quite a change now. Some agents are actually underquoting, I think, relative to what the market probably is to try and get people to actually go transact and make a sale, right? So, yeah, so th- th- there's a huge converge, uh, a divergence in terms of, you know, trying to get a sounding on what a, what a true value is. And, of course, the fact is nobody knows what the true value of property is until you actually put it on the market and see who comes along and who buys it. And the fact mm-hmm. is that if you've got two... You know, excited buyers on the day who have lots of money and are willing to pay, you might get a good price. Whereas if you actually have nobody turn up, then the value of property is, well, in theory, <laughs> something, but in practice, zero, right? Because market <laughs> discovery will tell you, you know, it's a very honest process, right? Market discovery tells you what the property is really worth. But so I've got a lot of first, a lot, a lot of first time buyers who say, I want to pile into the market. I've got a lot of down traders who are saying, I think it's time for me to sell now to release equity to be able to actually hold um, the value that I've got because I do think prices are likely to slide. What do you think? And that's why I said, well, here's my scenarios and let's have a talk about that. And so, and what's fascinating there is you then start talking about transaction costs and you talk about mm. cost of carry costs, right? And all, and all of those things. And, and the enthusiasm about how much value I'm sitting on starts to dilute, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry to be a bit of a, uh, a bearer of bad news, oh, but, God. but re, you know, reality reality dawns, right? And yeah, you can probably you know achieve some equity release, and you might, but then you've got to work out what you're going to do with that money once you've released it, right? Do you stick it in the stock market when the stock market is already very very high, or you know, do you buy another property? And you know, all of those questions come out. So again, what I want to highlight is that this down trading conversation is as equally complex. And it's multifaceted, and there are many different considerations that people need to work around to be able to work out whether it makes any sense at all. And I come back to the sort of the fundamental philosophical question about, so tell me again why you want to do this. And in some cases, it's just a fear of, well, you know, if property assets are going to go out, down, I want to release equity, right? But mm. you, you've, got to take the, you've got to take the thinking a bit further, I think. To be, to be honest, uh, and that's quite, again, a hard conversation to have. 
Oh, 100% agree with that. It's it's quite interesting how people seem to think it's a, sort of a single point in time and it's like, right, I've got to do this now. Hmm. And, and I was like, and then what? Because, <laughs> and it's like the assumption is that I'll get rid of this and then it's going to be really easy for me to buy something good. And and this is the other thing about bargain hunting at the moment. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure there's some bargains out there, but do you really want to buy them? Which is why they're bargains. <laughs> So what's your next group? <laughs> okay, so then we have to just touch on property investors, right, as, as a category because it's quite interesting how quite a few property investors are waking up to the fact that the rental yields uh, are actually continuing to decline. You know, mm. gross, gross yields in some um, areas are around 2%, um, up in Queensland yeah. a bit higher, in Tasmania a bit higher, but, you know, but net yields, if you actually – think of all the maintenance costs and the other bits and pieces that you need to do to actually keep the property together are a negative. So I've actually now got about 60% of probably investors in my um, analytic pool who are actually underwater on a cash flow perspective. Now, mm. if you believe that value is going to be created through capital appreciation you know, over the next two to three years, you might hold in there. But what's interesting now is that many of those probably investors of their own bat of coming to the conclusion that, that may not be the case. So there is a beginning to create a bit of a burning platform. And by the way, some of the banks are now beginning to lean quite heavily on some of these cross-leveraged property investors who have multiple loans, sometimes with uh, interest and principal repayment holidays for the moment. But the banks are beginning to say, well, hang on a moment, you know, you might want to consider selling before you get into further difficulty. And I think that's, you know, Ross McEwen a couple of weeks ago, uh, CEO of NAB, made the point there will be some people who the best thing they can do is actually put the property in the market and get out before things get worse. Now, he's talking from an experience back in the UK because he was there in the UK at the time of the global financial crisis. And I think that's a really important message. So, you know, first-time first buyers have issues, downtraders have issues, but... Property investors, boy, that's a really tough nut at the moment. Mm, mm. And are you getting a sense of the type of stock that these investors own, the ones that are reaching out, the ones that are worried? Yeah. So it seems to be more units than houses at the moment. Mm -hmm. Units seem to be where the major cracks are appearing, if I can <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that Run was a pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and partly, of course, because of the construction issues and, and particularly the high rise. Uh, it seems to be particularly um, linked to the high rise sector where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of similar properties all effectively now looking as though they could be coming on the market very soon. Um, mm. Plus, of course, there's, there's all, still new stock being built and being brought onto the market too. Um, and I, I did a, a, a show a couple of weeks ago looking specifically at one of the areas um, on the on the Paramapa River, which has been a very high-rise, high-density development area. And there are thousands and thousands of properties there um, on the market, officially and unofficially, many, many for sale signs sort of going down the street, right? And you look at the dynamics there and, and you know that that is an area where people are going to lose their shirts if they're not very, very careful. Um, yeah. The other point I think I, I, I'd want to make is that the concept of property investment, right, um, had two elements to it. The first is significant capital growth over the medium term, right? And there was a time when that was true. So from you know, the 90s to the 2015, 2017, that was true. 
um, but there were some reasons why we had that. The second was that with interest rates relatively um, low but not bottom, negative gearing was actually quite valuable, right? But Mm. two things. Now, negative gearing, because rates are so low, the offset you get is much lower, so therefore that financially is not so significant. And secondly, if you really truly believe that property prices will not rise over the next two to three to five years, and you are continuing to see negative flow on an ongoing basis, um, the investment makes no sense. And property investment is an investment. So on that basis, you should be making those decisions based on analytics, right? Not sentiment, but analytics. <laughs> However... They were piled into the market due to sentiment, let's face it. So, you know, there was no analytics. Or if there were analytics, they were marketing analytics. So, um, And that's the problem. So one of of the things that I suggest people do is to actually do the work and actually understand what the true investment performance of their particular portfolio is. And I must say that some were frankly quite shocked when they actually put it all together and realised that, they had to, of course, pay entry costs, you know, stamp duty and those things to get mm. in. They have cost of carry costs um, and everything else. And when you put it in together, that oft-quoted massive return from that property investment portfolio doesn't look so healthy. And if you actually then say, well, you know, look at people who've made alternative investment strategies, in some cases they've done better, in some cases they've done worse. And I'm not saying that property is good or bad. I'm just saying you need to know. You, you, you can't just set and forget this thing. You can't just assume magically this is going to be a magic pudding that will go on growing and creating more and more wealth forever. Um, we are past that. That was, frankly, because of deregulation. That was because of low interest rates, cuts in interest rates, and RBA bank policy. And it's interesting, of course, that generally the central bank and the regulators are encouraging people to borrow more even now to try to buy property, to try and support the economy, to try and keep the GDP up. But people need to understand that's the logic that's going on there, right? It is not about them recommending in other way property as a good investment class. That's not what they're on about. No, exactly. And if even the New South Wales Treasurer came out and talked about the increase of the, the the raising of the cap for the first home buyer grant, obviously for buying new property, and it said this is about the economy and jobs, you know, construction industry and jobs. Yeah. Um, the, you know, there wasn't a mention of first home buyers in there other than, oh, but first home buyers, we need you to buy this stuff because the investors aren't touching it at the minute. <laughs> but, and, and look, I, I, I've called... I've called first-time buyers cannon fodder, right? Oh, yeah, fuel to the fire. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, they are because mm. they are, you know, so if you think about who's buying, right, who's buying property at the moment? Well, we know that international investors are pretty much on the sidelines. We know that many property investors are saying, I can't, I can't, you know, see why I'd buy more property now, right? Um, we, we know that we've got the, the, the down traders wanting to sell. So who are the two groups? The first group are first-time buyers. The second group are my up traders. So these are mm. people who've got a property and thinking, well, you know, I want to get a bigger property or I need to move locations, right? Now, now the conversation with the up traders is a really interesting one because mm. quite often there you've got one property to sell and you're going to buy a property. And in a way, you know, if, if the market is moving not differentially, massively differently, 
it's still okay, right? Because basically at what point ever you, you bail out, you, you buy. And now then people sometimes get a bit, a bit you know, clever and say, well, maybe I should sell now and then wait for property prices to drop and rent for a year and then buy again. And I said, well, you, you know, yeah, you, you might do that, but you understand that there are some risks and opportunities by, by doing that, right? And it's not, it's not a lay down mazare. But it is, it is fascinating how very often um, the, the down traders um, are saying, I need to get out. The up traders are saying, mm, well, I think I want to do something. But there's a huge gap, right, between what the up trader is thinking of buying and what the down trader is offering, right? Because yes. there is a demographic <laughs> shift going on that people, people, right, a demographic shift. So are you going, are you going to start talking about sort of the, the, the you know, the 40-year-old home that's looking a bit sad and tired and that's actually not what upgraders wanting to buy? Correct. <laughs> it is funny though, isn't it? Because there's this, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric out there in the marketplace about, you know, you've got to put some stamp duty incentives in to get uh, downsizer to downsize. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't think that's the problem. The stock's wrong. Correct. That's exactly right. And, and what's fascinating about that conversation is that when you start unpicking what up traders are wanting, and why they're wanting to transact, right? And, and the sort of property that they're actually aspiring to, um, there's a huge mismatch, mismatch between that and all of the stock that the down traders, particularly those, you know, mm. 55, 60, 65 plus have. Um, this, this, is a, this is looking to me like a, a, st- a structural um, disconnect that we've got in the markets. And it's not universal, you know. There are there are some areas. So houses in and around the inner suburban areas um, are always going to be in demand, and there are always up traders who want to buy them. But if you yeah. come out to the western parts of Sydney or some of the areas around Melbourne, um, there's a huge disconnect, right, between mm. between the property stock and the property aspirations. And uh, one of the in- interesting observations I note is that people who are up trading quite often want to move away from these sort of Mac mansions, these big sort of new places on very small blocks and hanker after bigger blocks. <laughs> Interesting. That's <laughs> so, that's so odd. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, I've actually got to do a case study. I've been threatening to do this. I, when I was filming the show, God, how many years back now, maybe <laughs> seven or eight years ago, we did an episode out at Point Cook mm. in uh, West, Western Melbourne and, and I do get the heebie-jeebies at places like that. I really do. But And it took me a whole day of recce to sort of get over myself and go, right, okay, if these people really want to be here, mm. I have to help them work out how to buy the best possible property in this area. And so, and I learned so much just in that day of really of, of the different stages of land release and how they started really large and got smaller and smaller and smaller. And, um, and so we ended up buying a property for them that was in one of the first releases. It was so much bigger block of land. So the houses were further apart. And of course, the gardens are more established after a number of years. A lot of the early investors had moved out, sold to owner occupiers, the whole flavor of the suburb was different, managed to get one where the actual house design worked on that particular block so it's an accident really um and they sold and they actually sold for quite a good gain Mm. because we got also a discount because it was older and daggy compared to the new stuff (laughs) and i want to do a case study look at all those other newest newer ones that we could have bought for the same sort of money and work out if any of those are traded you know what their situation is my theory my hypothesis going into this is that they would have done a lot less in terms of gain if any than our people 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So back to your your comments about upgraders, assuming they do want to buy in an area where that stock is available, the conditions for upgraders in a falling market are actually very good, right? Because it's all about transaction costs. However, psychology of it all is that people often find it a struggle to sell their property for less than they thought they were going to sell it for, even if they're paying less when they buy the next one. Have you been finding that? Yeah, absolutely. So that is there. It goes back to the psychology again, mm. right? So people people don't want to give up any of the prospective value that they thought they had, mm. right? And, and that's particularly true in a uh, an uptrading situation where what you're doing is effectively selling and then buying again. And you know, one of one of the interesting observations is I, I try to talk to people about the difference between asking price and settlement price. Mm. Right, because those two things are not the same, and of course, all of the prices quoted in the uh, uh, property portals are aspirational asking prices or guide prices. Right, and I, I keep making the point that, particularly in a falling market, that doesn't give you a good guide to what the actual transaction price is likely to be. You're likely to settle for lower, and I actually try to give some indications of the difference between the two. You know, which is often sort of seven or nine percent, right, at the moment in some places. Um, and what that means is that people actually do a sharp intake of breath thinking, well, hang on a moment, I've got to reset my expectations then in terms of one, what I'm going to get and, you know, psychologically that's tough and two, what I can then afford. Well, yes. The the thing too is funny because we've interviewed um, people from REA and also Domain and, and they both, actually, no, sorry, it's called Logic. I think it was Eliza Rowan talking about the discounting price discounting um, mm. figures and Domain have apparently released a new measure which is it's not so much the discount as in the sale price versus the asking original asking price but it's actually sort of measuring the trajectory down the hill <laughs> um, which is sort of interesting as well because it's like while the property's on the market they're measuring that um, yep. but with auctions it's, it's completely different because it's quoted and the inference is you're meant to get more than that you know what I mean so it's all quite confusing this data and I often point people to look at the sold sections of these portals because that's where you, if, assuming they haven't got price not disclosed all over it that's actually you find out the real sale price not the asking price mm. well that's exactly right but of course in a falling market you find ever more prices not disclosed yes very true. Right? And, and, and what my observation is at the moment is that uh, you can almost bet your bottom dollar if it says price not disclosed, it's because prices were actually lower than they expected. And by the way, it's the same with auctions, mm. right? The auction, the number of auctions that are now actually being reported without a price is actually rising. Um, and in fact, uh, I've got some data from uh, uh, a few different sources that show that, you know, overall, not disclosed has gone through the roof <laughs> in the last few months. I was wondering if you had any access to that, because that, that is absolutely a, an indicator of 
how agents and owners are perceiving the market. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, one, one of the people I work with, uh, uh, Tarek Brooker, actually went over Domain's data and pulled out all of the statistics for the last few years. And he's got this wonderful chart, which, uh, in fact, I used on my show the other day, which showed how much has gone up in recent, in recent times. So, so there's a much higher proportion of uh, prices that are not disclosed. Now, there's an implication of that too for the way the indices work, right? Because if the indices don't get hold of that data, what it means is that that transaction is out of the market and out of the data pool for at least three months mm. until settlement actually happens, right? And that means that the indices themselves could well be overstating the, what's happening in the markets because that information is not available. Oh, very good point. You know, I don't like medians for a lot of reasons, but there's a good one. Um, now, <laughs> it's... Interestingly enough, though, like when you look at your your graphs, right, your charts have um, three types of three types of people. And when I'm talking about the charts, I'm talking about the ones on um, consumer confidence or household confidence. Mm. You've got mm. um, basically it's renters, owner occupiers. Uh, well, you actually got renters, owner occupiers, and investors. But you also got renters, mortgage holders, and unencumbered. I think that's Correct. the word you use. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's quite easy to understand why those with a mortgage feel more stressed than those who are debt-free. But mm. I imagine there's a lot to unpack in understanding why renters feel less confident financially than the other two groups. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's a bunch of drivers for that. The first is that um, many renters be, rent because they don't have the same financial reach um, to buy mm. to start with. So they're, they're, they're in a situation where financially they're more you know more more uncomfortable to start with yeah. secondly um renters often are more um uh, itinerant mm. so they perhaps move move around more and you know uh, maybe to do with the type of jobs they've got or uh, just their personal circumstances um and the third thing is that they feel disempowered because of course they are subservient to the lease and to the landlord and um i've had quite a few people um, tell me stories, quite horrible stories recently, despite the official, yes, you'll be protected for the next few months and you'll never, you know, you won't be asked to, to, to leave. Some people in rental situations have had huge pressure on them because they were unable to make the repayments on their, on, on their rents and um, were sort of being encouraged quietly to just to move on. Uh, or worse, this is the one I found the most shocking. Many renters are not clear whether the rents are just postponed or forgiven, mm. right? So at the end of the six month or whatever the period is, are they suddenly going to get a, a bill for the last six months and say, no, you've got to pay that as well, right? So this That's is contributing to producing, their sense of financial yeah, disease. Cor correct. So so all of those factors uh, make make it very unclear as to, you know what's going on, and that that then comes back to a lack of confidence. Now, with 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 property investors, they're very uncomfortable because of the the, the lack of returns um, and the risk with you know capital values. And owner occupiers um, are worrying because of the fact that uh, in many cases the mortgage stress is rising too. The other category that I that I talk about are those who've got a property or multiple properties, and you know investments in the stock market and now that particular group is a little more confident not because of property but because the stock market has performed very well and um you know we've had one of the biggest returns in the last three months we've ever had of course people forget that we had a huge drop just prior to that so let's not get over <laughs> overexcited um but nevertheless that tends to make them a little um more 
positive. But all three, all three of those groups, renters, mortgaged, and uh, you know, home free, as it were, um, are all under the long term average in terms of confidence. Right. And that tells you something about the broader economic environment that we're in in Australia at the moment. Which is no surprises there. But it, it does that the, the stock market I've found fascinating because, you know, and the big argument, oh, but it's forward looking. And I'm like, yeah, well, what does it know that nobody else knows? Um, no, but, the, the, the market is disconnected. It doesn't work on, on a forward, forward estimation basis. Well, right? that's it because profits um, are, are shocking and you've got, you've got companies that have never even shown a profit. And, and so correct. it's, it's yeah. all wishful thinking. So, well, if you want to talk about that for a second, there's two points. Firstly, a lot of the people who've come into the stock market in the last three months are newbies. Mm. Um, they're clutching their government check and they've said, oh, we're going to the stock market. And they, it's easy. I've made lots of money in the first, you know, three months, right? The second point there is that um, all of the government stimuluses around the world has created a lot of spare money yeah. and that's flowing into the markets too. So that's being driven higher. It is disconnected fundamentally from long-term value and long-term um, value calculations and equations. Um, you could argue, in fact, that capitalism is dead when it comes to the stock market at the moment, because it's basically a market that's uh, manipulated by central banks and it's driven by all of those factors. Smart investors are actually much more cautious than those newbies, mm. right? And the other point is that um, a lot of stocks around the world, particularly in the US, have been driven higher by companies issuing cheap bonds because money is very cheap and then buying sharebacks buying shares back, right? So they haven't actually created any fundamental value in their business. They've just reduced the numbers of shares and therefore have actually forced the price higher. And what that signals is that in the stock market, we have a lot of businesses around the world who are zombie companies, right? They are not actually going to create value long term. Uh, they are doing it through financial manipulation and they're doing it um, on the back of naive investors. This is not a recipe for long-term success. One of the reasons why I'm still believing that the market has significant room to fall later, not immediately, but later. And when it does, that will be another nail in the coffin of um, wealth creation for many people. So, and all we're doing is seeing behaviour in the stock market, which we've seen the same behaviour in the property market, um, <laughs> really. I mean, and like, yeah, do you just ever feel like going, yeah. oh, I give up? Buggy you all, you know. <laughs> I try to try to point it out. I try to point out that it's dangerous and risky. I just give up. <laughs> um, look, my, my my view is, and I've been around, you know, in these markets for a long, long time. And I've, you know, I've been a property investor and a share investor, and uh, I've I've been through num numbers of crashes of stocks and property and etc. And by the way, I've still got sh shares. I've still got property. Mm. So, you know, it's not that you're I not, you're don't, not cash but, is king. But, <laughs> No, well, I, I don't have a bit of cash because I actually think cash is quite useful just yes. at the moment. But, uh, but, but look, the, f the fact is that people go into it with this amazingly rose-tinted view of investment, right? And they get all of this stuff coming through from the mainstream media and from the, you know, if you go on the internet and you listen to all these people talking about this get-rich-quick get thing or this wonderful scheme they've got, um, <clears throat> the, 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 there are so many people spruiking, right? Mm. And all I'm saying is I want people to be realistic about what they can do and the returns that they can get and the risks that they take. Um, there is no such thing as a risk-free investment, whether it's property, whether it's gold, whether it's um, uh, stocks or shares or bonds. You know, there are inherent risks attached to each of them. And I want people to just take a 
take it a bit more slowly and do a bit more work, right? Now, I know that's very um, you know, anti-internet because everybody wants everything, instant gratification and you know the, the, the one-line headline and then move on, right? Actually, sometimes you need to do the work. You need yeah. to actually think about these things a bit harder. And look, my training is a philosopher, right? And so I tend to want to go ask that next question and go below the waterline and really try and get to know what's going on. And look, yeah, many people will say I'm just horribly negative and, you know, just just ignore me. I don't that's fine. That's fine. But <laughs> I don't care because I know I'm actually onto an important element, which is that there is no such thing as instant money. There's no such thing as a get rich quick scheme that isn't going to be falling over at some point, and there are risks attached and people should be making decisions not based on just gut or not just based on a headline but based on doing the work, getting the information and understanding more about what's going on. And from that perspective, I think that, uh, you know, DFA has a significant role to go on playing. And, for example, I'm going to actually start exposing some of this data that I've got at the postcode level um, so that people can get it more widely because I think it's an important alternative narrative to help people make better decisions. I think it's excellent stuff. I think you should put together a little mini course so people can actually go and and an assessment of their own postcode, um, you know, all your data points and um, that'll save you a lot of time. <laughs> well, uh, the, the interesting thing, I mean, I started doing the one-to-ones because I was interested to get some um, perspectives and also help people. But, but yeah, there is, there's a crying need for different information platforms, mm. different tool sets. And so, yeah, we're thinking about, and I'm working with a technology partner now, to think about how we can make some of these available. So, you know, for example, could we pr- provide a, a questionnaire that allows people to make a self-assessment of, of their financial flow situation, for example, yeah. right? Um, many people don't understand what a cash flow is, but it's quite straightforward to do. But once you've got that, boy, that's really powerful. Or if I could provide information at a postcode level, which I can do and show how the stress dynamic works and some forward indications on where prices might move, that could be quite valuable too. So, yeah, hopefully over the next uh, few weeks and months, you, you'll you'll see more of that uh, coming out of the system. We have all the data and now we're trying to work out the most effective way and the most appropriate way to share it. Bearing in mind, of course, it's not financial advice and, and I can't go down that rabbit hole. And there are various rules and regulations that start coming into play when you start um, getting close to providing you know, more rich information. So that there's a lot of hurdles to cross, but we're going to try and navigate those because this is about empowering individuals and households to make better financial decisions for their own future, right? And that, for me, is the fundamental point about all of these conversations and all that I do. It's about empowering individuals. It's not about trying to trap them into a particular solution or, you know, provide them with, you know, a world-class this or that or the other, right? This is about helping individuals make better decisions for themselves. Uh, And, you know, hallelujah, really, because that's exactly the point of this podcast. And also, I mean, as you know, I've been... Uh, working with Megan Wells to build Home Buyer Academy for first home buyers, teaching them, you know, step by step how to get there without falling into all these many, many, many pitfalls. And the big thing, we're just sort of halfway through actually with our beta group. And the, the sort of mar- the middle point is to stop, reflect, review, recalibrate. You know, don't just go headlong, you know, tick, 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 and then think about it afterwards. Yeah. You know, this is slow down to get it right. 
And yeah. um, it's just so important, it, it, particularly with first home buyers, because it's the first rung on the ladder, and you, you just—it's very unforgiving if you get that one wrong. So you well, know, you know I've, I've, I've said a few times, and I'll say it again: it amazes me how people make more uh, attempts to research a car when they buy a car mm. than they than they do a property. You know, and if you think about the relative cost of the investment and the risks attached, it is remarkable. But it's partly because of this asymmetry between the real estate sector and the real estate portals and all the information that they've got and all of the stuff that they throw through the media in terms of their, you know, articles and everything else, right? You're being bombarded all the time by this stuff. Mm. So it's much, much harder to really keep your head above water and take an objective view, which is why it's so much more important to empower people and help people to ask the right questions and, as you say, take a bit of time, take a second breath. Um, You know, I, I sometimes say... There's no need to jump. You know, you're not going to miss out just by, you know, taking an extra week or two to think it through in the current environment. And, by the way, there are always more properties. Well, this is the thing. It's actually I'm quite astounded at the amount of first-home buyers who feel FOMO when they're buying a house and land package. And I'm going, but just just for a moment, look, look online and see how many blocks of land are available and then see how many ads are actually advertising an upcoming subdivision that you can you can uh, put your name down on a waiting list <laughs> i said oh, no. so there's no need for fomo guys <laughs> you know this just don't rush is oh dear anyway so yeah. do you have after all these because we've been touching on dumbos all the way through this conversation but do you have a particular <laughs> example of a or story of a property dumbo for us yeah so there is one person, I'm not going to say who it was, one person told me of the biggest regret that they made where they basically saw this plot, right, and they were convinced that this was perfect for them, right, and they basically went and purchased it, not realising that on the other side of the road there was planning permission for an industrial park that two years later started being developed and that property is now worth a quarter of where it was. Aww. And the question I asked them was, who did the search, you know, mm. who actually did, because you should always do a search, yeah. right? You should always understand the area, understand the roads, understand what's opposite, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and basically there was a sort of a, a long, silent, we didn't think, we didn't think, right? Yeah. And well, hang on, you, you must have had somebody involved in the convention process. Well, we, yeah, we 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 did most of it ourselves, and we we basically had a non, you know bit of online stuff. Oh. So basically, what they what they had done was to try and go for the really cheap route, mm. right? And the really cheap route in this particular case had ended up with an absolute nightmare, a property that is not saleable uh, at the moment. And I just worry that that could be one elephant. But unfortunately, an elephant that maybe is being repeated again and again and again was people try and cut corners and go for the cheap, you know, cheap conveyancing, etc. You know, mm. there are so many risks for people who don't know what they're getting into. Oh, I know it's that's a horrible dumbo. Uh, you know, there are so many risks, and this is the thing that cool. people don't even right. know what to check. What I really love to do, I'm gonna I'll pop in the show notes your uh your most your blog link yep. so that people can look at some of that data. Yep. But also, if you can send me through the link to the uh, the video or the episode that you've got uh, when you talked about the price not disclosed data, yes. that'd be really useful too. And I'll pop that in the show notes. Yeah, great. Okay, I'll send you, I'll send you a couple of links. I'm very happy to. Mm. Lovely. Thank you very much. 
We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... One of the things we talked about with Martin was uh, his uh, interaction and understanding of pressure that investors are under at the moment, particularly if they've got themselves into a situation where their cash flow is really impacted, but also they really are staring down the barrel of no capital growth for the next few years. And they're going to be under some pressure to want to offload that investment. And I guess one thing that I would want to um, talk about here is the importance to make sure that you don't bail out of a good asset. You know, markets go through cycles and there is going to be a period of time where there'll be negative growth or flat growth or or positive growth. Uh, Not every property will be impacted in the same way. Not every area is impacted in the same way. And for Uh, owners to actually panic and sell the wrong property is way worse than if they just stop for a minute. So when I talk about selling the wrong property, I'm saying that if a property owner and investor has numerous properties in their portfolio and they are under financial pressure, it's tempting to want to sell the property that is easiest to sell first and also tempting to sell the property that's had the greatest amount of gain first because we have this thing called the disposition effect and that is where it hurts more to sell something where we only make a small gain or even a loss Um, whereas that might be the asset that is the worst asset in our portfolio the property that might make the loss or the property that hasn't grown as much in value could be this the very one you need to get rid of because of opportunity cost as opposed to actually selling the asset that has done very well or has the potential to do better over time than the others so the boot camp here is really about the importance of making sure you assess the caliber of each asset before you choose to sell any of them so you can lighten your financial burden sure uh, you can lighten your cash flow you can actually get a bit of an injection of cash that's fine uh, by selling your better asset but long term you'll be worse off so i think it's an important thing to start the process by really looking at that i will put uh, a link to a blog in the notes that i wrote some time ago about selling the wrong asset and the dangers of it and the disposition effect Um, because I think it's a very important thing to think about particularly in the current market. Please join us for our next episode. We interview real estate agent coach or peak performance coach Tanja Lee. Now why are we interviewing a real estate agent coach? Well because we want to get to the bottom of how real estate agents are being trained to influence buyers and vendors for that matter. So if you want an insight into what's going on in the world of property and how people are being influenced by the professionals in this industry then you need to tune in. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or north shore my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. 
We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.